You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. During Christmas and New Year, it's very difficult for any of us not to overindulge. Whilst typically a male should consume around 2,500 calories a day and a woman 2,000, according to recent research, the average person consumes just over twice this amount of calories on Christmas Day alone. Add the extra calories we consume on the run-up to Christmas and just after, and it's no surprise that our waistbands will be a lot tighter than they were before Christmas. So is there a way to celebrate and remain within the boundaries of a sensible dietary regime? Anne Holdaway is a consultant dietitian. I definitely think there's a way to work through Christmas and enjoy the festivities, but still enjoy the food and all that it brings in terms of companionship and bringing people together. So how might you do that to make sure that you do control your calorie intake And I think by giving some consideration to your day and how you might structure your day might help with that. Maybe thinking of having a break in between your main meal and the dessert. During COVID, many of us started going for walks. So if you can build that into your day, so you get out and do some activity. When it comes to mealtimes, there's lots of plus points about the Christmas main meal. Turkey is a low-fat, lean meat. If you're having a nut roast in its place, then again, that can be healthy. If you accompany your turkey or your nut roast with plenty of vegetables, they're rich in vitamins and minerals and low in calories. And then probably key to all of this is watching your portion control and for me one of the easiest ways to do that is looking at the size of your plates probably the amount you eat at a meal time is perhaps determined by the size of the plate you use because we have a tendency to fill our plate up particularly when we're celebrating something like christmas so i would say look at your plate can you use a smaller plate and then take your time over your meal and enjoy it if we eat very quickly we tend to overeat in a very short period of time before your body's even got to sense those calories and when it comes down to alcohol. Alcohol is a huge source of calories and we know that it's harmful for health if we regularly overconsume on a daily or weekly basis. We know during the festive period that many of us will consume more than is ideal for us. I would say you need to keep hydrated. So if you're going to have a glass of wine or that half a pint of lager, whichever alcohol drink you like, then make sure you've got a glass of water or a soft drink on hand. Those soft drinks and the water will keep you hydrated and may actually help you just reduce the amount that you might drink of the alcohol. And in 2022, around half of us will make the vow to eat a more healthy diet. Yet research shows two out of three of us don't actually know what a healthy diet is. A healthy diet should basically give us all of the essential nutrients that we need for the body to function well. And part of the problem in the developed world is we overconsume calories. So with a healthy diet, we're trying to manage our weight, keep it within the normal range for your height and for your age and for your sex. And there are lots of resources around to provide practical advice on managing a healthy diet. I think sometimes it goes over our heads. But in terms of some top tips, protein foods are important. That's things like chicken, meat, fish, eggs, dairy foods. Fats and oils, watch out because even your healthy fats like olive oil and rapeseed oil are very high in calories. And then the carbohydrates are an important part of the diet for giving us things like fiber and energy. And the fiber keeps the bowel healthy. And then always ensure your meals are accompanied by veg and salad or fruit because those provide essential vitamins and minerals but also fill us up at mealtimes by not providing too many calories but making us feel satisfied afterwards. 
Research shows there are 35 million of us who are overweight or obese with record numbers of people living with diet-related type 2 diabetes. More than half of us admit to wanting to lose weight. Type in how to lose weight into Google and five of the top 10 auto-suggestions are related to losing weight quickly. Is there a quick fix to weight loss? I don't think there is a quick fix and I think what's really important when you come to losing weight is thinking about is it the right time for you, getting the help you need. I would always say try and team up with a buddy so you're not doing it on your own. There are a whole host of diets out there but it's about being realistic and if we look at some of the research that comes out of very large databases there are probably two things that help people to lose weight and keep it off and that is looking at a food diary and now we have lots of apps to help you do that to try and manage your food intake and monitor it and look for the reasons why you have a bad day and don't beat yourself up so much about that because you've got tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and then the other thing is keeping active so I would always say if you're looking to lose weight keep as active as possible. Putting you in the picture this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. With his flowing white beard, bulbous red nose and rosy red cheeks, Santa Claus is the epitome of the Christmas season. Yet, experts in the skin disorder rosacea claim that Santa's prominent red and complexion are classic symptoms of a condition that affects 6 million women and men over the age of 40 in the UK. Alison Bowser is author of The Complete Guide to Acne and Rosacea. It's often mistaken for adult acne and rosacea can cause flushing or acne-like bumps and spots pimples, visible broken veins on the face and neck and in the more severe stages the nose can become deformed as well and may turn red and bulbous if it's left untreated. Alison I know this is a situation familiar to you thanks to your work supporting people who live with acne and rosacea. Talk us through the impact that this condition has. Low confidence or low self-esteem issues and as you can imagine that also spreads into things like career choices and work and up to 7 out of 10 people say that it has actually had a direct effect on their working life. Despite the numbers affected, few approved therapy options have been available until recently, but now doctors have new options and research has shown that there are things that sufferers can do to help themselves. Self-management, identifying triggers and making some lifestyle changes. And up to 80% of people can expect to see some real improvement in their symptoms if they adhere to treatment regimes that their doctors have prescribed for them. And so those who continue to use therapy as directed will be able to hopefully keep their rosacea well under control and get their lives back on track and be as normal. This is Word on Health with Paul Penningson. More than 40,000 men are diagnosed with prostate cancer each year. It usually develops slowly, so there may be no signs you have it for many years, as Meg Burgess, a specialist nurse from Prostate Cancer UK, explains. Most early prostate cancers don't cause any symptoms at all. But if there are any changes, whether those are benign changes or possibly because of a prostate cancer, it might cause changes to your waterworks. So possibly a slower slow or starting and stopping of the flow or a dribble, having to pass water more frequently, especially at night time or a feeling that you haven't completely emptied the bladder. Other symptoms that might indicate a problem could also be any blood in the urine or semen or any bony pain as well, particularly in the lower back or hips. Those are things that a man should be speaking to his GP about. Meg, I know that all sides of the health community wish that men, especially as they get older, would be more interactive with the healthcare system. There is currently no specific screening programme for prostate cancer in the UK. What about tests? Well, the first test that may be used to look at risks of prostate cancer being present is the PSA test. 
It stands for prostate-specific antigen, and that's a protein that's produced by the prostate. So the test is looking for a higher-than-normal level in the bloodstream. It's not as accurate as we'd like it to be. At the moment, it's the best test that we have as a starting point. The main disadvantage is that it can come back for a high level for reasons other than prostate cancer. But the advantage is, for many men, it is the first indication that there's a problem, and we then go on and do further tests. I understand the causes of prostate cancer are largely unknown. However, certain things can increase your risk of developing the disease. What are they? The incidence will increase as men get older and the average age of prostate cancer is actually between 70 and 74 years of age. But the other risk factors that we know about are a family history. So if you've got a father or a brother that's been affected by prostate cancer, then that will increase the risk. And the other risk factor is ethnicity. So we know that black men have a higher risk of developing prostate cancer compared to white men. The good news is survival rates of newly diagnosed prostate cancer patients have improved vastly from 30% in the 1970s to 80% today. What about the future? We need better diagnostic tests. We need a better understanding of the aggressive or the non-aggressive types of prostate cancer uh, so that potentially in the future we'll be able to much better individualise treatments for men more confidently. And we need more treatments and access to treatments, especially for men that are living with advanced disease. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. At a time when we're taught it's better to give than to receive, the power is within our hands to give the greatest gift of all, the gift of life. Whether it be to ensure that in the event of our passing, our organs are available for transplant, or we follow the shining example of 4% of the eligible population who selflessly help save up to nine people's lives every year by donating blood. Every day, including Christmas and New Year, up to 10,000 donations of blood are needed. 30% of us want to give, but never have. And if you're between 17 and 65 in England and Wales, or 17 and 66 in Scotland, there's never been a better time to come forward. Ishet Askan from NHS Blood and Transplant reminds us who can and can't give. In order to give blood, you need to be in good general health and weigh over 50 kilos, which is 7 stone 12 pounds. If you've got an underlying medical condition, if you're undergoing some kind of medical investigation, then it's possible that you won't be able to donate. But in those instances, we advise people to call our contact centre or look up our website where they can find out more information. Ishad, I know it's difficult over Christmas and New Year to get people to come forward and donate blood. Why can't you stockpile blood from earlier in the year? Yeah. Blood has a limited shelf life. We do separate blood into its component parts. So red cells, for example, we can store for up to 35 days and platelets we can store for only five days. For those reasons, we can't stockpile blood and we need people to become regular donors coming in two or three times a year and that way we can maintain healthy stock levels. The process to give, it's fairly straightforward, isn't it? When you come along to donate, we'll take some details from you, name, address, date of birth. We'll go through a health check with you. We'll check your iron level, so we just take a small drop of blood from your fingertip and then you stay on a donation bed it takes about 10 minutes to give your donation which is 470 milliliters and once you've done that you can have a short rest and then go over to our tea area and enjoy our light refreshments this is word on health with paul pennington over the past 40 years we've thankfully seen an 82 percent fall in the numbers of infants dying from sudden infant death syndrome or sids as it's otherwise known sadly still on average four babies die each week from SIDS. Jenny Ward is from the charity The Lullaby Trust. 
I think our understanding really is that this is quite a complex picture. We're not going to fund a piece of research that will come out with one answer. We know there's something intrinsic about those babies that makes them vulnerable. We know there's a particular time in their development that makes them a bit more vulnerable. And then we know that there are things that families can do that will make a difference. And that's the part that really we want to focus on. And we're not here to frighten parents. We're here to make sure that they are informed of what we know. If us giving out one piece of advice might change something one family does and that saves that one baby then you know we're here and that's what our aim is so talk us through those things that we can do well the first thing that everybody i hope is aware of is that babies need to sleep on their back not on their sides or their front and that needs to be for every sleep that's a really key piece of advice keeping your baby smoke free and particularly in pregnancy as well as after the baby's born that's something really important that families can do and then giving them their own safer sleep space so making sure that they're on a firm flat surface that it's got a waterproof cover on it that they're not near any pillows or duvets or or puffy or raised sides really that it's what looks like a very dull sleeping place but actually that's the safest place for babies to sleep and there are additional pieces of advice as well keeping your baby cool making sure that their heads can't get covered there are lots of other pieces of advice that do make a difference but those three things are really the key so on their back smoke free in a separate sleep space safer sleeping hopefully will make a difference yeah well we've seen that it has already i mean a drop of 82 percent is amazing but for us now it's the challenge of looking at sadly those babies that are dying looking at the circumstances in which they die and what we know about those babies and really highlighting that to parents alongside your campaigning work another key aspect of what the lullaby trust does is offer emotional support to bereaved families how does that work when you do have any sudden death within this country a lot of professionals get involved very quickly which is a good thing because it means that we're throwing everything we've got into trying to find out if there is a reason and if we can't find a reason if there's learning that we can bring from that but it's very daunting for families you know being asked lots of questions and having people that you've never known before asking you about your baby is a very scary thing for families to go through so we're here for them and they can contact us 365 days a year we also have a team of befrienders and they are bereaved family members themselves who we've trained to offer the same listening advice and when you're looking at rates going down by such a large amount thankfully it means that obviously much fewer babies are dying but it also means that where those babies do die families can feel quite isolated so being able to connect up to somebody who has been through something similar to you is really important to families word on health on air and online 52 weeks of the year with paul pennington word on health your personal prescription for your very best of health 